Well, if you would please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I've got a tough task today. I know many of your minds are set on what will happen later this evening, and it is my great hope that you will set your minds on God's Word in uh, the coming minutes ahead. But I also have a tough topic. Tough topic. I want to start off by framing why this is a tough topic in our day. Don Carson has said, you can read it in his devotion that gives um, help for each passage of the the Bible throughout the year. He has said that there was a time when almost everyone in the English-speaking world could quote John 3.16 by heart. It was certainly the most well-known verse in all of the Bibles. You will probably see it on some type of sign today at the Super Bowl game. It may still be the most well-known verse in the Bible, but it has a rival in our day, and that is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Don Carson says that this verse has quite possibly become the public creed of our culture. Even those who can't cite it, chapter and verse, will paraphrase it. You can't judge me. But when Jesus gives the command to judge not, does He mean it? Absolutely. He does mean it. But does He mean it in such a way that we are never to judge someone? I don't think He can mean that. You just track down two or three verses further in Matthew 7 and you will see Him commanding His disciples to not throw their pearls before pigs. How can one obey that command if one has not first made a judgment that this person is a pig? Also, if Jesus means it absolutely, then it certainly contradicts other passages in Scripture one of which is the passage that is before us today. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 11, we read quite explicitly that is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When Jesus tells His disciples to not judge others, He can't mean that we are not to make judgments. Would contradict His other teaching and the rest of the Scriptures. He is saying, however, that we need to watch our attitudes. We need to watch our hearts. We should not be judgmental. Should not think that we are better than other people. We should not be overcritical. But most importantly, we don't get to sit in the seat of God. We do not determine a person's eternal destiny. That's not our job. And so in that sense, we are to judge not lest ye be judged. But our culture and even the church has hijacked Matthew 7-1 to serve our own 
purposes. To give us carte blanche permission to live our lives however we want. To say, stay out of my business. That is not simply the sexual revolution out in the world today that is saying, you can't judge me. It is people within the church who are saying, you can't judge me. But unfortunately, in an effort to not be harmed by somebody else's criticism, they are harmed by not having the needed correction in their lives. You see, if we are Christians, we need people up in our business. We need people that we have agreed with together. To speak into our lives. To help us follow Jesus. To observe everything that He has commanded us. And to correct us and to urge us when we are not observing all that He has commanded us. Our topic this morning is church discipline. According to popular perception, but certainly according to practice, you see, nobody's really doing this in the broader evangelical world. Church discipline is for narrow-minded zealots who are judgmental and don't know how to mind their own business. But I find it interesting that the reformers that we are so intent on appealing to for recovering the gospel of grace, that they listed three marks of a true church, and one of them was church discipline. In their mind, a church that was not practicing church discipline would be questionable whether or not that was a true church. Church discipline, right alongside the right preaching of God's Word and the right administration of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. In our own membership covenant, we have included church discipline. We have said that those who join this church will gladly, gladly submit to the discipline of the church. Why? Because we believe that we can't get on in our faith in Jesus Christ without it. Here's my argument this morning. Discipline is necessary for discipleship. It's not just something that we have to do because we're commanded to do it. We do it because we know we need it if we are going to make progress in our faith. A disciple is simply somebody who follows Jesus. But a disciple who is mature is somebody who knows they need other believers in a local church to help them follow Jesus. And they need help in two ways. According to Jonathan Lehman in his book, Church Discipline, it's a great book. If this topic, if you feel that it's, eh, I don't know, I would encourage you to read it. He says we need both formative and corrective discipleship, discipline in our lives. 
The formative part is where we teach and we encourage people to stay on the road of following Jesus. The corrective side is when we warn people when we see them veering off the path. Do any of you ever veer off the path? I do every day. We need one another to keep us on the path. Both formation and correction are needed in discipleship. Church discipline is the corrective side of discipleship. Now I want you to get something out of your mind before we move on in this sermon. Sometimes discipline, the process of discipline, leads to formal discipline. What I'll be calling in this sermon formal discipline where we remove somebody from membership of the church and we do not admit them to the Lord's Supper. We call that excommunication. We've done that in this church. However, excommunication is not the only form of church discipline. Church discipline, what is it? In the broadest sense, every time a member of this church exhorts another member of the church, Church discipline is taking place. Someone in the church is doing corrective discipleship through their exhortation. Every time we rebuke somebody who is walking in sin and call them to repent and to live in line with their profession of faith, we are engaged in church discipline in the broadest sense or in corrective discipleship. This is a good thing. I hope you walk away today believing that. Scripturally, it is clear that it is a necessary thing. Our passage this morning is about formal church discipline where a man, Paul is commanding the church at Corinth to excommunicate a man who is living in blatant, public, unrepentant sin. But it is my hope that the lessons we learn from this passage we will apply to the regular, everyday process that every believer is called to engage in of exhorting one another every day as long as it's called today. So as we read this passage, we will see three reasons why church discipline, formally speaking, but also informally speaking, are necessary for discipleship. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I now am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So three reasons. Discipline is needed in the church. Three reasons why it is necessary that all of us engage in this practice. That we are okay being a part of a church that engages formally in this practice from time to time. Three reasons why we must do these things if we are to be healthy as a church. First, church discipline is for the sake of God's reputation. Notice in verse 1, Paul says it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The man in question is not living with his biological mother. It's most likely his stepmother. Somebody that his father has married other than his mother. We don't know that they're married. They may be, but they're certainly sleeping together. And Paul says, this man needs to be removed from among you. Verse 2. He needs to be put out of the church. Why is that? For one, it's blatant sin. The law in Deuteronomy clearly prohibited a man from taking his father's wife. Not simply from not having sexual relations with people that your own flesh and blood, but also of not having your father's wife. And other close kinship relationships. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and chapter 27 verse 20 it says, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife. So that's the obvious reason. But there is something that comes out very clearly in the context that I think is even a bigger reason. And that is this man's blatant unrepentant sin is doing violence to God's reputation in the world. The sin he has committed is not even allowed amongst the sexually promiscuous Greco-Roman world. Think about the Greco-Roman world. If you'd like to read some books on the sexual ethics of the Greco-Roman world, talk to me afterward, and I'll let you know. But let me just say that as we say in our day and age, sleeping with your girlfriend was really no problem in the ancient world. Even having a mistress on the side 
was okay. Engaging in homosexual practice was certainly permissible in the ancient world. So do you see, our day and age, which we decry as being so repulsive, it was that way in that day too. But even in that culture, they would not allow somebody to sleep with their stepmother. In fact, this man could have been expelled from Corinth for his behavior, but the church at Corinth is unwilling to expel him from their own gathering. They should have been mourning his sin and the blight it put on God's reputation. But instead we are told they are arrogant and unwilling to excommunicate Him. You know, I really think that that's what's at the heart of our unwillingness to engage in church discipline. We're arrogant. We think we know better than God. The arrogance that's on display here, I'm not quite sure why, but I think I know what it is. The broader context shows that the church at Corinth really prized highly important people. And so it could be that this man was a really important person and really important people are untouchable. This man was a man of high reputation. But instead, they should have cared about God's reputation within the broader culture. Chapter 5 heads off a long section on sexual immorality. And at the end of the section... In chapter 6, Paul concludes, beginning in verse 18, by saying, flee from sexual immorality. And then in verse 20, he tells us why. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So chapter 5 begins this section on sexual immorality. He ends by saying, the purposes of all of it is for you to glorify God. Then he moves on to the next section, which has to do with Meat offered to idols. And he gives all of this instruction. And then he says in the famous verse, in chapter 10, verse 31, whatever, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. He was applying that very specifically to the topic of eating food offered to idols. His concern in all of the ethics that he's laying out within this book is that God would be glorified in Corinth. That people would look at the church at Corinth in this pagan world and they would see something of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What is at stake in church discipline? The very reputation of God in our community. Whereas the Westminster Confession of Faith says church discipline is necessary for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the Gospel. Remember what we learned on the first week of this series. The church on earth is an outpost of heaven. If we are in Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as citizens, our job is to represent the King. The church has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We exercise them this morning. 
in baptizing Molly Shasta. We are authorized. We have the responsibility on earth to recognize those who belong to the King from heaven. We do that in baptism and bringing people in to church membership. But we also have the responsibility of unrecognizing a person's profession of faith when their life or their doctrine no longer accords with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't have baptism the front door into the church without there also being a back door to the church. Both go together in the economy of the church. The whole thing is about representing on earth what is true in heaven. We are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is then to bear that name out in the world so that God, so that people would see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. What is the church, friends? Are we not a city on the hill? Are we not called to be salt and light in this world? Are we not the pillar and the foundation, uh, the buttress of truth? The church is meant to be like a diamond ring, the prongs on a diamond ring that sets forth the glory of the diamond of the gospel in the world at large. When a person's life shows no evidence of ongoing faith and repentance, that person is doing damage to the reputation of our God and of the gospel. The church has been tasked with marking off those that we believe to belong to Christ through faith and the gospel. So when a person continues tarnishing God's reputation in this world, we have the responsibility to take action. And this not only applies to gross sins like incest in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you continue on in the chapter, Paul lists a number of other things. Sexual immorality, sure, but notice the other things that he says. Reviling, drunkenness, swindling. And this is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Any, I would say, ongoing, public, unrepentant sin that damages God's reputation in the world could be a cause for church discipline. Our statement of faith says that God's justifying grace must not be separated from His sanctifying power and purpose. We believe what the Reformers taught, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But remember what Martin Luther also said? Saving faith is never alone. It will always be, imperfectly, yes, but accompanied by works. As John the Baptist says, we are to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. And when there is no evidence of the fruit of repentance in our life, we have to wonder if one, in fact, has been saved. We can't simply go on a profession of faith that was made in the past, a baptism that was administered in the past. Part of our ability to continue to give ongoing affirmation to a person 
is seeing the ongoing sanctification within their lives. We all sin. That's not the issue here. The issue is what we do when we sin. If a person persists in sin and won't respond to loving correction, they call into question the genuineness of their faith, they do damage to the reputation of God, and the church therefore has a responsibility to deal with that appropriately. Let's now look at the second reason for church discipline. Church discipline is for the sake of the sinner's restoration. So the first is a desire for God and His reputation. That should come first. The second is the desire for the sinner themselves. We know this passage is talking about formal church discipline because it's an action that takes place when the whole church is assembled, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think this is important because I don't want you to think that this odd text in 1 Corinthians 5 is unique. The language used here is almost identical to the language that's used in Matthew 18, which applies to much more broad situations. The unrepentant sinner in Matthew 18 is brought before the church who is assembled in Jesus' name and Jesus promises that He is present with them. There are other similarities In Matthew 18, if a person does not repent of their sin, the church is to treat that person as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, they can no longer give their affirmation that this person is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Something similar here. As the church is assembled, they are called to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that sounds really harsh. But I think it's the same thing that's being said in Matthew 18, but in different language and with very helpful metaphors. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? I think it means that it is simply to be handed over to Satan's realm. What realm does Satan preside over? He presides over the world. The church is a different realm than the realm of the world. The church is an outpost of heaven. The world is under the rule of the devil. So being put out of the church and being handed over to Satan is simply being put back out into the category of belonging to the world. Not a citizen of the kingdom. But notice the purpose. It's for the destruction of the flesh. This could be translated the destruction of the sinful nature as the NIV says. You have flesh and spirit that Paul is constantly talking about here. So the goal is that their sinful nature would be destroyed. It's similar to what we see in 1 Timothy where Hymenaeus and Alexander are handed over to Satan so that they may learn to not blaspheme. Here, Paul seems to be saying, put this person out of the church and back into the world so that they may learn not to commit Sexual immorality. The goal is that this man would learn to not walk in the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit so that he may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's what's at stake when a person is living in unrepentant sin. It's their very eternal salvation. 
Earlier in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, if anyone destroys, there's our word, God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. As we'll see, this man is destroying the church through his actions. Therefore, he deserves to be destroyed by God, not by the church. It is not the church's responsibility to destroy people through discipline. Discipline is designed to destroy the sinful nature so that the person will not be destroyed on the day of God's judgment. Formal church discipline is an act that says we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. But the church never saved a person in the first place. God did. The church certainly cannot condemn a person to hell. Only God can do that. But the church is used by God to warn a person that if they do not repent of their sin, that they may be liable to the judgment on the last day. The goal is that God would use the formal, official warning of the church to get this person's attention that one day they will not simply face church censure, they will stand before the living God. Thankfully, this man in 1 Corinthians 5 was eventually restored. Can you believe it? It happens. People that are sleeping with their stepmom and won't turn around sometimes do turn around. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This process doesn't always work. But friends, let me just say this again. This is God's process. I think sometimes in the church we think we are wiser than God and we think we are more loving than God. This is God's way. And there is much at stake. Are we willing to submit our way to God's way? Now this passage is speaking of formal church discipline, but the goal of restoration, it applies to all forms of corrective discipleship. Not simply when we get to the end of the line and we're excommunicating somebody. Think of Matthew 18 again. Before the sinner is brought before the church for formal church discipline, Jesus says, you are to go privately to your brother and tell him his fault. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Do you see, even in the private admonition of another brother or sister in Christ, the goal is restoration. We see the same thing in Galatians 6, verse 1. If any one of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, I think that just simply means you who are a believer, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. The goal is restoration. These verses in Matthew 18 and Galatians 6, they help drive home this repeated point. The point of church discipline is the reputation of God, the restoration of the sinner. 
We're not better than anybody else. That's, it, you are not presuming to be better than somebody else when you correct them for their sin. They may tomorrow correct you for yours. The goal is to receive the mercy of God to be restored to God and to one another. The other thing Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 drives home that I want you to grasp is that church discipline is the work of every member in the church. Not just the work of the leaders in the church. That's part of why membership and a membership covenant is important. You were saying, I'm signing up to be corrected and to correct. We're, we're going into this with our eyes wide open, knowing that that's going to be a part of our life together. There's a real danger. I don't want to minimize this. With being judgmental in church discipline. That's why Jesus tells us to get the log out of our own eye before we go to tell our brother the fault that they have. That's why Paul says, restore them gently. It's really important that we don't go off the rails here. But I'm afraid that out of fear of being too judgy, we have shirked our responsibility to engage in corrective discipleship. And ironically, out of a fear of not being perceived to be unloving, we have been really unloving to one another. One of the most unloving things you can do, I mean, think about this as a parent. One of the most unloving things that you can do is not to correct your children. One of the most unloving things that we can do is to not speak when a person is living in persistent sin. But we do it all the time. Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 14 says, Take care, brothers. He's speaking to the whole church. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The author of Hebrews seems to be very aware that there will be people who are identified with the visible church who are in real danger of walking away from God. So what is the antidote to this? He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. True faith in Christ, by definition, perseveres. It's not simply walking an aisle, raising a hand, praying to receive Christ, getting baptized. All of those things are good, or at least some of them are good. But if a person does not persevere to the end in faith, we have reason to question whether or not they had actually believed. But in God's providence, He has designed it so that we help one another persevere in the faith through exhorting them every day as long as it's called today. 
Do you see how important our work of exhortation is? It is God's very means of helping people keep on in the faith and not fall off the path. The stakes are high. It's a matter of heaven and hell. Friends, the most unloving thing you can do, therefore, is to stay silent out of fear that you are being judgmental. Yes, check yourself. Make sure you're not being judgmental. When you are, repent of that. But may I just say again what I said at the beginning. If we are in the body of Christ, other people's walk with Christ is our business. Our business is body business. And that's part of what being a part of a local church involves. So we've seen that church disciplines for the sake of God's reputation and the sinner's restoration. Let's look now with the final reason for church discipline. It's for the sake of the church's purification. Look at verses 6 and 7. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What does this mean? In the ancient world when people made bread, it was a little different than today. They would take a little piece of the bread and set it aside. That lump would then ferment. Then they would use that lump as they made a new batch of bread to help it rise. But if that process went on and on and on again, interrupted year after year, sometimes that lump of leaven will become infected. And if you then put it in the bread, then it could infect the whole lump. You see the way that he's making his argument. If we don't get this infected leaven out of the church, it could infect the whole church. The company we keep really has an effect on how we are formed as disciples. But all of that to say, getting rid of sin in the church is not what makes the church pure. And Paul is clear to clarify that part of his argument. The thing that makes the church pure is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the ultimate Passover lamb. It's Christ's work on the cross that cleanses us from sin, that makes us holy. The argument that he is making is you are holy, you are pure, so now live pure in holy lives. The order is important. The Passover lamb is sacrificed first during the feast. Then the feast of the unleavened bread is celebrated. What Christ has done to make us His people comes first. How we live pure lives comes after that. That's a gospel-centered way of understanding the call to purity within the church. This leads Paul, his call to purify the church through putting people in unrepentant sin out of the church to clarify just whom church discipline is for. I think this is really important for us at a practical level today. It is not for those outside of the church. It is for those inside the church. Paul wrote a previous letter saying, don't associate with sexually immoral people, all of these other things. But now he's clarifying, I'm talking about people in the church. That's who you should judge. People who identify as Christians. We do the exact opposite in our day and age. We are pointing our finger at the world all the time, making judgments 
about them. But we are reticent at best. Chicken is probably more accurate to do any judgment of those within the church. Paul doesn't want the people of God out of the world. We need to be in the world. We actually should be with sexually immoral people in the world. We should be with homosexual people in the world. We should be with transgender people in the world. They need to hear the Gospel. They need to see the light of Christ in our lives. Paul is not saying don't associate with sinners. He's saying don't associate with sinners who identify as Christians. You're giving them false assurance. You're doing damage to the name of God. And it's affecting the purity of the church which is meant to represent God. Don't even eat with such a person, he says. Jesus ate with sinners. Unbelieving sinners. But we are not to eat with professing Christians who are living in blatant, ongoing, public, unrepentant sin. This probably means simply that they are not to come to the Lord's table. They shouldn't be marked off as belonging to the people of God. But I think it also ought to mean, and this is important, we have excommunicated people in this church. How do we relate to them? We are not to shun them. But we are also not to act as though they are a believer. That they are still a brother or sister in Christ. Our posture toward them ought to be a posture of calling them to repent of their sins, to believe the Gospel, to be restored to God, to be restored to fellowship in the church. Your relationship with them now is almost one of an evangelist, not as a brother or a sister. That does not mean that we do not let people who are not believers be a part of the service, right? People that have been disciplined to not come to church, we want them to hear the Gospel. But we do not let them continue as members. We do not let them come to the Lord's Supper. This is all for God's glory. It is actually used to help restore sinners to God. And it is for the good of the church. It is necessary, in fact, for our discipleship in Christ. It is good. I hope that you see that it is so. And I hope that you will then engage in it lovingly, but courageously. That you will not be embarrassed by it, but that you would embrace it as the alien and stranger that you are. Destined for the kingdom of heaven eternally. Let us pray. Father, You discipline those whom You love. Help us to remember that. That if we are in Christ, we are loved by You. I pray, maybe more than anything, that we would be people who are willing to receive correction first. And then as we grow, that we would also be willing to give correction lovingly. Motivated by Your reputation. Motivated by other people's 
salvation. Change our hearts, O oh God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.